Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Second Samuel chapter 23, and I'm going to read the whole of the chapter. And here is, at the end of David's life, a highlight, a highlight reel. The things that David once remembered, the men he fought with, the men who served him, his own view of himself. Let's hear God's word together. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here's what he said, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, when one does that, Then God dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things insecure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with a hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josh Bashbeth, a Tachmanite, he was chief of the free. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him... Among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoyai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi the Harite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the chief, thirty chief men went down and came about the harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they carried and brought it to David. But... He would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord 
and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander. But he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. He was renowned among the thirty. David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Harod, Ilka of Harod, Helez, the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abizer of Anoth, Mebunai, the Hushathite, Zalmon, the Ahohite, Maharai of Netophah, Heleb, the son of Bana of Netophah, Etai, the son of Riba of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, Abialbon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Baharim, Eliba the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah the Harite, Ahim the son of Sharhar the Hararite, Eliphalet the son of Ahashbai of Makkah, Eliam the son of Ahitophel the Gilanite, Hezra of Carmel, Parai the Arbite, Egal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Naharai of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruai, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Amen. Well, it is astonishing to me, maybe it's, maybe it's not to you, but here we are almost at the end of Second Samuel, chapter 23, almost the end, chapter 24, in two weeks' time, the very end. And it is a fitting end, isn't it? It's where you would like to end a book so often with the last words of a king, chapter 23, verse 1. Last words are so often so telling, aren't they? So compelling. But the last words of a king... Such words are often spoken, aren't they, very deliberately? Spoken very deliberately to shape a future. That words like this go down in history. They can even, even come to define a reign and be the thing that is placed over the reign as a banner at the end. So here we are at the end of Second Samuel, the book. Here we are at the end of David the king. And we're told, now these are the last words of David. 
The, the, the last word is likely referring to verses 1 to 7. And it's not that these are the last recorded words of David as he's lying on his deathbed. It's not that these are the things he says with his very last breath. No, it's more that these are words that David himself said, I want these words to be put over my life. They are, if you like, David's last will and testament. They are his last official words. Today, I guess, we might say, David is saying something like this, let the record show that such and such. And David's last will and testament is this, friends. God is doing something in his world that is sweet, so sweet, and we should want to sing about it all our days. What God is doing is so sweet, we should always be singing, wanting to open our hearts to him. That, that's verses 1 to 7. Sweet songs. And then as the writer of Second Samuel says, Okay, David, I'll take those words. Leave it with me. Trust me. I'll put them in at the end of the book. It's as if the writer then says, verses 8 to 39, as he looks back over David's great reign, and he says, Yes, David, you're right. There is sweetness. Immense sweetness in your reign. But, ah, David, so too there is bitterness. So there is bitterness, awful bitterness, galling memories. It's almost as if the writer isn't quite able to let David have the last word, is it? Left to David, the book would end at verse 7, and the writer says, we, we just can't do that, David. We don't airbrush things here. I know what you want up as the banner of your life, but there is more to it. For David's memory, sitting there in the corner as an old man, his memories are bittersweet memories, aren't they? So that's what I want to do this morning. It's so simple. I want to give you a sandwich this morning. I want to give you the sweetness of David's reign on the top. And then I want to give you the bitter meat in the middle. The bitterness of of his reign. The bitterness of his memories. And then come back again at the end to more sweetness. So sweetness, bitterness, sweetness. That's what we're being nourished with this morning. And as we do it, as we begin to look at this chapter, I want to ask you this question. We've traveled nine months now together with David, haven't we? We've been with him through all the greatest highs of his life and the lowest lows of his kingdom. We've been with him through everything. So what would you say was the greatest weakness of David's kingdom? You don't need to say it out loud. I want you to think about it. I'm not going to tell you. Well, I will at the end, but not at the start. Let let that percolate in the back of your mind as we look at this. David's kingdom, what was the greatest weakness in his kingdom? Let let that, that, that thought sit there and just look at the sweetness of David's reign. Look at the opening of the chapter. You know, says David at the end, the end of his life, when all is said and done, I want you to remember me, verse 1. Yes, as the king, yes, as the son of Jesse, chosen by Samuel to be the Lord's anointed, I want you to remember me as the shepherd king. And that's what he's saying by calling himself the son of Jesse. Remember, he was a shepherd boy out tending the sheep when Samuel does the lineup of Jesse's sons, all the ones who are the most likely lads to get selected as king. And David isn't even there. He's out in the fields tending the sheep. The, the littlest, the lowliest son of Jesse. 
That, that's why David says in verse 1, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the shepherd boy taken from obscurity to become king of Israel. Remember chapter 7, verse 8, 2 Samuel, thus says the Lord of hosts to David, I took you from the pasture, from following your father's sheep. I took you from there that you should be prince over my people Israel. David begins this last will and testament by saying, I want you to remember me as the shepherd king. More than that, I want you to remember me as, do you see that lovely phrase at the end of verse 1? I want you to remember me as the singing shepherd king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel. What a beautiful way to remember King David. The church Bibles, if you're using it, you'll see a little footnote down to the bottom. That, that phrase, the sweet psalmist of Israel, it might actually be the favorite one of the songs of Israel or the hero of the songs of Israel. But, but the key thing is, this is how so many of us know David, isn't it? The poet warrior. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Oh, the sweetness, friends, of what David has given us in the Scriptures. What a man. Just a man. An ordinary man, raised by God, exalted to be king. The sweetness of his reign is very, very sweet. And here at the end, David says, here at the end, there is one kind of sweetness I want you to know most about. I want you to remember me for verse 3. Put your eyes on verse 3. I want you to remember that when I sing or when I speak in those psalms, God is speaking. When I speak, when I sing in the psalms, God is speaking. The God of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. And, and that, that really explains a huge part of what we do at Trinity Sunday by Sunday, opening the Bible. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible is heard, God is heard. Look what he says. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, this is what it looks like. One of the sweetest, greatest, beautiful lessons of my, my reign, David says, is that God has shown us what it feels like to have the very best of leaders. God has shown us what it feels like. Take, take that in with me from verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, look what he says. He dawns on them like the morning light. He gives us a picture that, that sun outside that you woke up to this morning, that, that sensation of cleanness, brightness, of, of lightness, that is what it feels like to have the best of leaders when someone rules justly and in the fear of God. The sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, rain that waters the parched earth and makes the grass come up again. You know that kind of feeling of just being totally, totally baked and then rain arrives and fruitfulness returns. That's what it means to rule justly and in the fear of God. Those are the two key attributes of a leader, aren't they? In verse 3, leaders need to rule justly. They need to fear God. 
so beautiful, isn't it? It's sweet. Imagine having somebody over you, directing you, who does not fear you. Have you ever thought about that? Imagine having a leader who is not seeking your approval and praise. They're only seeking God's praise. They fear God. Think how freeing that is. You, You can't flatter this leader. You can't butter this leader up. Their eyes are on God. They want to lead you in a way that honors him. And they rule justly, with integrity, with no corruption, uprightly. Think about it in our terms, friends, the leaders that we have. The leader in verse 3, friends, is never investigated for misleading parliament. This leader never makes one rule for them and another rule for the people and they do something different behind closed doors. This leader is never arrested over concerns over financial irregularities. No, he rules justly over men. Now look at why David is a sweet psalmist. He knows how not just to tell us about a leader like that, he helps us to sense what a leader like that feels like. The last time you went to vote, friends, you were putting your X in the box, in the ballot box. Did it, did it feel like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning? Well, maybe it did for you, your view of your political leader. I put my X in, my, in the box and, box and held my breath. Did it feel like rain on parched ground? Everything growing again, sprouting, wonderful? The the world is going to be perfect now? No, oh friends, the the sweetness of David's reign. The, the, The book of 2 Samuel says to us, there is nothing better in all the world than a leader like this. This is a book to say to us, your kingdom come, O God. If we were to be ruled like this, it would be the greatest thing on earth. So let me ask you again. What is the single greatest weakness of David's reign? Still not going to give you my answer. You still have to wait. I wonder what your answer is. When we get to verse 8 of this chapter, friends, when we get to verse 8, the sweetness just continues. That there is a great sweet thing to see about wonderful human accomplishments. In David's reign, this mighty list of mighty men. And there is a sweet thing to see about human accomplishments here. And a sweet thing to see about human devotion here. See, from verses 8 all the way down to the end, verse 39. This is not strange to us. This is, we'll go to the cenotaph and see the names on the wall. Go to any military college and see the corridors, the military academies with the great heroes of military victories past lining the walls. Look at these men. Honor them. You people who did not have to fight, they fought for you. Here is the SAS highlights reel of David's reign. Here are the most daring exploits recorded to be remembered for all time. If you're going to make a film of David's reign, it's chapter 23. That's the screenplay. That's what goes in the film. His top battalion of 30 men or 37, depending how you count them up. And within that elite unit, there is a crack unit of three. Three men who really make the top, le- the top list who stand out for their daring deeds. This is what veterans do, isn't it, when they get together. 
if they've reached the point where they're able to talk about war, round the campfire they remember the exploits, the tales, the heroism, the conquests, and out come the stories. These are men of valor and courage. Just look at them. The first one, Josh, Joshesh Bashbeth, a Tak Mennonite, chief of the three, wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. It's easy just to read that, isn't it, and move on. But can you imagine that? The kind of skill, the kind of courage, bravery. Some of, some of you will have seen the awful images over the last couple of weeks of a, a, a policeman in, in the United States, in Texas, the body cam released from one of the, one of the mass shooting events. The, the body cam begins with the policeman standing talking to a mother and three children about the need to put on their seatbelts, standing having this pleasant conversation in the car park. And then in the background, you hear the, the pops of the gunfire starting. And this one man moves the women and children to the side. Stand aside, ma'am. Run for shelter. And he runs towards the danger. He runs into combat. He runs to fight, to save, to protect. This is what David has here. Men who were willing to do that. Men who were going to fight for him. War isn't sweet, is it? But look at verse 10. He rose. Eleazar, this is this time. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Verse 12, Shammah. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great victory. All these men say when they get together around the campfire, I know we were fighting, the men say, but God was working the victory. God was working. Oh, this was God keeping his promise to Abraham, wasn't it? Those who bless my people, I will bless. Those who curse my people, I will curse. Brothers and sisters, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, God will deal with all his enemies. Not all bow the knee to Christ as king. Not all want to bow the knee. Now the Bible is clear, isn't it? Many will spend eternity in hell saying to God, my will be done, not yours. My kingdom come. Not yours. Oh, friends, there is such terrible evil in the world. And when the king is ruling, when the king comes, when he rules perfectly, there will be justice. Every deed done in a corner that no one else has seen, that has crushed and maimed and wounded and left a trail of devastation where there has been no help for the helpless no justice for the abused the desecrated the devastated oh this king sees it this king knows it this is a story of great human victories here yes but human victories in perspective the lord was working the lord brings justice let, let me show you one other thing. Verses 13 to 17. Not just great human accomplishments in perspective. Verses 13 to 17. Great human devotion in perspective. 
great human devotion and perspective. Here's an incident when David, I guess possibly not literally, not literally thirsting, but perhaps with nostalgia, longing for the waters of Bethlehem. Maybe he was literally thirsty. He's, he's physically parched, but he has this moment where he just says, that water in Bethlehem, oh, if I could taste it again. Oh, if I could go back to that land of plenty, if I could, if I could get some of it. And to his amazement, three of his mighty men take him literally. And off they go. They break through the camp of the Philistines. They draw water out of the well. Imagine them coming back to David. We've done what you longed for. And they watch David pick up the water and pour it out on the ground. It's astonishing, isn't it? See, they've brought David the water of Bethlehem, but they put their lives on the line to get it to him. Such devotion. But to David... That water represents the men's blood. They were willing to shed their blood, for, their blood for him. Is that what he says? Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? David will not use such devotion to him for his own sustenance. He takes what they've given for him and says, I have to give this to you, God. Listen to the words of one commentator. We sense that there is something magnificent here, even if it is not easy to put into words. We just sense it. David gave what these men had done for him. He gave it to the Lord. It was as though he was saying that such devotion, such love and sacrifice really belongs to God alone. See, friends, this is the making of a leader. This is one of David's most superb, most stunning, powerful moments as a king where he got it right. See, what do bad leaders do? Bad leaders take, don't they? They take and take and take. They, they don't feed the sheep, they fleece the sheep. They, they take what people can give to them. What is in it for me, they ask. How much limelight will I get if I do this? No, but David took great devotion to him and he didn't keep it. He gave it to the Lord. Oh, friends, pity the leader who does not know how to do that. Do you remember Absalom in Second Samuel? Absalom, the Lord of Long Locksville, the man with the flowing hair who thought everybody should fall at his feet, adore him. Le- leaders need to be encouraged all the time. Please, yes, always. Leaders need to be encouraged all the time and leaders need to be impervious to praise. It has to bounce off you, not not crawl into your heart. Leaders have to say, oh, to you, Lord, to you alone the glory. To you alone. When you sense people's devotion to you like David does here, you don't keep it. You give it to God by humbling yourself and lifting it up to God. And look at the example for all of us in these men. Some of us in this room want to be part of these mighty men, the boys at least. Some of us are thinking, I'd love to do that. Imagine being like that, that brave, that strong. But it's a pattern for all of us. They were fully devoted to the king and so they were fully devoted to God himself. Do you know what that's like? Radical, full, complete, wholehearted devotion to God. Wholehearted devotion to God. 
What does God get of your paycheck? Do you get what's left? Or the first fruits from it? The best of it? What does God get of my time? My talents, my resources. Many believers go through life, don't they, assuming that Sunday is just another Saturday with a bit of church thrown in. As long as church doesn't clash with something, I'm there. But devotion, fully devoted, week in, week out, it's, it's costly, isn't it? I remember hearing about a man in America. Uh, you know how the, in America, the way that financial giving works, it's end of year giving. A lot of giving is done at the end of the year for tax purposes and so on. And I, I remember hearing about one man in America in a, in a church who went into his church in January. And in the first week or so of January, he went into church in January and he gave to the treasurer all his annual giving up front for the whole year. He gave the whole lot in one go in the first week of January. And he said, the reason I'm doing this is because it is going to be a difficult year financially. And if I do not give it now, I may not give it at all. And so it's for you, Lord, all of it. I'm, I'm going to give in a way that depends on you for everything. Human accomplishments in perspective, human devotion in perspective, sweet, sweet memories of amazing acts, heroic deeds, splendid leadership, costly consecration. It's all here in chapter 23, isn't it? And yet, you knew there was going to be a but, a yet. A yet, friends, bitter, sweet memories that there is wormwood and the gall here in this chapter, isn't there? There is bitterness laced through all of this. Did you feel it? Did it sting you as we read it? Isn't, there, isn't this writer so powerful, so, I think we can call the writer barbed, can't we? So careful to not airbrush history and to say that in the Bible there is just make-believe and pretend, let's all get along No, in the Bible there is only truth, always truth, the unvarnished truth. For look right there at the end of David's mighty men. There it comes in verse 39. After everything has been built up, one crushing hammer blow at the end. Among these mighty men, these good men, these loyal men, it makes it worse, doesn't it? These mighty men, there comes Uriah the Hittite. And the writer says, I'm just going to leave that there. Just going to put that out there. Uriah, the man who lost his wife to David's lust. The man who lost his life to David's deceit. Oh, friends, the memories. The the, the picture book, the Instagram highlights reel. It It is bittersweet, laced with bitterness. Can, can, you imagine, can you imagine David hearing it? He, he meets with his ghostwriter. How's Second Samuel coming along? Uh, how, how am I looking at the end of the book? And he says, yeah, I'll, 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 let's start with the final chapters. Let's end the final chapters with a focus on my singing career. And then he reads, oh, him again. Well, why did you have to mention him? Not him again. Will I ever be free of this? Oh, his regret, his shame, his sorrow. What, what is the greatest weakness of David's kingdom? 
What's the answer you've given? The greatest weakness of David's kingdom is David himself, isn't it? The greatest weakness of his kingdom is this king, this man. Friends, how many of us know this ourselves? I guess many of us do. It just takes hearing a name, doesn't it? Just one name. Hearing a song. Seeing a photo. And that photo album sits on the shelf. And you know when you get it off and you open it, you know what you're going to find. You, you open it and look back and the, the tears just begin to flow. The memories are bitter sweet. The regret... It's there, isn't it, on every hand all around us. You do, not, you do not get to where many of us are today, this far into life, without twists and turns and bends in the road that have left us only wanting to turn the clock back if we possibly could. To, to go back to that point and make a different choice, choose a different road, treat somebody differently. Many of us feel this morning our best years are behind us. Only the end is in sight. The horizon is filled with regret and bitterness. Well, here's our sandwich so far. Sweetness, bitterness. But I want to take you back to sweetness again. I hope you noticed as we, as we, as we did this, we didn't look at all of David's song, did we? Come back to David's song with me again. The God of Israel has spoken, verse 3. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, is that David? He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Well, maybe, possibly a bit. Sometimes David's rain was like that, but didn't the clouds gather so quickly? But what does David keep saying? For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me, what? That he's going to base everything on my performance as king? That if I get it right, all will be well? No, he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Brothers and sisters, the greatest strength of David's kingdom is the promise on which it was built. See how it works? The greatest weakness in the kingdom is this fallen man himself. The greatest strength is God's promise to David. The promise of Christmas. David's house stands to this day, 2nd of July, 2023, because God made a promise to David. An everlasting covenant, a never-to-be-broken promise. Not that David would live forever, but that his son would rule and reign forever. Great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus, the world's true king. That's what we're about to pray together in just a moment, isn't it? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Because the greatest strength of Jesus' kingdom is Jesus himself. Listen to Alistair Begg. I've enjoyed him all the way through Second Samuel. You've enjoyed him because I've enjoyed him. And here's what Alistair Begg says. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that the story of King David and the promise that was made to King David is the answer to your life. 
It is the answer to your 10-year-old life, your 22-year-old life, your 50-year-old life, your 60-year-old life, your 95-year-old life. The promise to David is the answer to your life. The promise that was made to King David is the hope for the entire world. The entire world. Not just Ohio, where Alistair Begg is. Not just America. Not just Aberdeen, where we are. The entire world. Because the story of the kingdom is the truth of the gospel. It is the fact that this king who is promised through the line of David is one who will embody all that makes it possible for the world to be the way that God originally intended it to be. We know that when God made the world, it was really good. Everything he made was good, but it is not good now, is it? It is broken. It's filled with disappointments, pain. People have to go to hospital. People get dementia. Things are upside down. And as a result, people say, is there any way that this can be fixed? And the fixing is the promise to David as king. Your throne will rule forever. You know, friends, I want to say this to you this morning, and I say this with a measure of caution, uh, knowing there are people in the room significantly older than me. I want to say this to all of us today. Your best years are ahead of you. Your best years are ahead of you. Simple as that. End of story. David is doing here at the very end of his life. He is drawing comfort and hope, placing a banner over his life, not because of what he has done, but because of what God has promised. His past is checkered. It's littered with ruin and bloodshed. And yet David looks back on God's words to look forward in hope. That's what he does here. This house will stand forever. And so I want, I want you to do something. This might be unusual. You can close your eyes if you want to do this at the end of the sermon. You don't have to. But I want you to imagine something. I want you just to imagine this. Imagine a deep, dark winter. And imagine the first day of the start of daylight saving time. The winter is past. The seasons are changing. Spring is in full swing. The dark mornings are gone and the light is back. You go for a walk in your favorite park and it's cool because it's early in the morning and it's cool because it's just rained and you can feel the earth drinking in all that lavish moisture ready to burst forth in life. The air is cool, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, there isn't a cloud in the sky. The world you live in, in that world light has dawned. Grass is sprouting, things are growing. Where do you think you are in that moment? David says that is what Christ's kingdom feels like. That is what it will be like when he comes. It's why we pray, your kingdom come, O God. Oh, there is no ruler like him. And so we pray, come. Come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.